You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Today we are concluding our series in 1 Timothy, which we have called Gospel Culture in God's Household. We actually began this series back in September of 2019, uh, almost two years ago. Uh, I did five sermons uh, before we broke for Christmas, and then we moved into this building, and we started our Gospel Foundation series, and we did all these other things, and then we resumed this series in September 2020, and here we are 14 sermons later, 14 plus 5, so I guess 19 sermons later, and uh, we are uh, coming to a conclusion in this wonderful letter. We began this series with the aim of learning about how the Gospel transforms local churches into radical communities. Communities that are characterized by humility, prayer, thanksgiving, godliness, service, and contentment. We, we, we began this series with the aim of seeing how the gospel transforms God's household, which is the church, into a place where its pastors lead by the example of the godliness of their lives, where the weakest members of the church are cared for and not forgotten, and where sin is taken seriously and put to death. And now as Paul concludes this divinely inspired letter, he ends with one final word to wealthy Christians. Now the wealthy Christian may seem to some to be an oxymoron, You know what an oxymoron is? It's where two words that seem to contradict one another are used to describe the same thing, like a a jumbo shrimp or growing smaller. Uh, They seem to contradict one another, but but they don't. But is this an oxymoron? A wealthy Christian, can, can, can these two words coexist and refer to the same thing? After all, didn't Jesus tell the rich young ruler to sell all his possessions? And give the proceeds to the poor and to come follow him. We just saw a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10. That the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And if you know the New Testament you know that the vast majority of the Christians in the early church were poor. For example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 Paul says. That most of the believers in Corinth came from humble backgrounds. Not many were wise Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Instead, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet where the master of the feast sends his servant to invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame because everyone else had rejected his invitation. The Christian faith, if you, if you read church history, it has always welcomed the weak and the poor because they are often the ones who bring God the most glory through their gratitude for his undeserved mercy. Now having said that, the New Testament also shows us that there were wealthy Christians as well. 
For example, in Luke chapter eight, we're told that one of the first disciples of Jesus was a woman named Joanna. And she is described as the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's, uh, King Herod's household manager. She worked in high places. Uh, she was married to, to an aristocrat. And yet she traveled with Jesus and was one of the women who provided for him and the apostles out of their means. In Luke chapter 27, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea, the man who took the tomb that he had carved for himself and and gave it over to to the apostles so that Jesus' body could be buried there, we are told that he was a rich man. And then in Acts chapter 4, we're told that Barnabas, you remember him, the, 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 the... the companion of the the apostles who traveled with Paul on many of his missionary journeys, one of the leading disciples in the early church, Barnabas, he he sold a field that belonged to him, not the field, but a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There were wealthy Christians in the early church. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we see that there were wealthy Christians in the church in Ephesus that Timothy pastored as well. As Paul gives specific instructions to the rich members of Timothy's church. There is such a thing as wealthy Christians. And as we'll see today, wealthy Christians can also be healthy Christians. Not in the sense of the health and wealth prosperity gospel when when they talk about living your best life now and and uh, seeing all your suffering go away if you just have enough faith, but in the biblical sense of the healthy Christian, one who is humbly devoted to serving others, one who is committed with zeal to growing in godliness, one who is walking in the fear of the Lord. You can be a wealthy, healthy Christian, but in order to be one, You must learn to avoid the dangers of wealth and learn how to use that wealth for the glory of God. Now, one more preface, uh, comment in preface. You may be thinking this, well, this text obviously doesn't apply to me or to us because I'm not wealthy. There are so many people out there who have far more money than me. They live in bigger houses. They have better paying jobs. Uh, This text surely applies to them and not to me. Well, if we compare ourselves to others, that may be true. But if we compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul, which is what we should be doing because we want to consider who he had in mind when he was writing to the rich, then we must conclude that he did indeed think about people like us when he wrote these verses. You remember what Paul said in in chapter 6, verse 8, when he said, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I mean, that was Paul's standard of living. Food and clothing, I have enough. I don't, I don't need anything more. I can be completely content with that. And anything that I have beyond food and clothing is a luxury. Everything that we own that is beyond food and clothing is a sign of our wealth. Some of us may have more wealth than others. You can afford more than those who are around you. But, but if you have more than food and clothing, then we must conclude that these verses have something to say to us. If you have the luxury of going on trips or paying for internet or owning a car or TV or a phone, if you, if you live above this basic standard of food and clothing with which we would be content, 
then these verses are meant to speak to you. So with all that said, let us read our text today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The title of this sermon is The Healthy, Wealthy Christian. And I must admit, the reason why I titled this sermon like that is I hope that some who believe in the prosperity gospel, the false doctrine that if you just have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy, I am hoping that some listen to this and would gain a little bit of perspective. We're going to have three points today. First, the dangers of wealth. Second, the blessings of wealth. And third, final instructions. First, the dangers of wealth. You'll notice in verse 17 that Paul begins by addressing the rich. And as he does so, he he includes a subtle reminder to the rich that their worldly wealth is temporary. He calls them the rich in this present age. There are several ages in God's history of creation, his story of the world. In this age, this present age that we live in is only one of them. The wealth that we own now only applies to this present age. It doesn't carry over to the age in the ages to come. And so when we leave this present age, either by death or by the return of Christ, none of the riches that we own will matter. It's not like we're going to have a a coupon or a voucher to to bring into the new heavens, the new earth, so that our worldly account balance will be restored to us. If we are rich, we are only rich in this present age. Now to be to the rich in the present age, Paul tells Timothy to charge them not to be haughty. To be haughty is to literally to have high thoughts of yourself. It's to think of yourself as more important, as more valuable, as more significant, as more worthy of admiration than others. Timothy is to charge the rich, which means to authoritatively command them to not be haughty. Haughtiness is one of the dangers of wealth. It can make us believe that, that by virtue of what we own, we have become better than those who own less. Uh, wealth can give us an inflated sense of our own worth. This false belief that we have made it to the big leagues, that, that we are superior to others. It, it really is, in some ways, the new morality There was a time when people were commended and looked up to 
and, and held up as paradigms in society for their character. But now, what has replaced character has been wealth, fame, power. Character is a secondary virtue. Timothy is told to charge the rich to not be like that because this haughtiness has devastating spiritual implications. You consider what the Bible says about how God relates to the proud. It says God opposes the proud. He, he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And why is that? It's because the proud steal his glory. The proud ascribe to themselves what God has given to them as a gift. They say, look, look at what my hands have built. Look at the kingdoms that I have fashioned. Look at the wealth that I have accumulated. Look at the size of the barns that I've had to build. I've had to tear down my old barns and build new ones to store all my stuff. They may not say it with their mouths, but they are thinking it in their minds. And the result is that they start trusting themselves more than they trust the Lord. The Bible warns that God opposes such people. He is against them. And he will either bring his judgment on them if they do not belong to him, or he will bring his loving discipline on them if they do. Pride also undermines our relationships with other people. Haughtiness, high thoughts of yourself, cause divisions because haughty people don't want to associate people with people who are beneath them, who don't rise to the same standards that they have for themselves. They only want to give their time to people they think are worth their time. I used to hear this a lot in law offices and in the, uh, in the courtrooms of our province. Well, I have a lot of time for that person. And usually when they refer to a person who was worthy of a lot of their time, they were talking about someone who was smart, influential, and wealthy. Well, Paul is saying that that doesn't just happen in Ontario's courtrooms. It happens in Christian churches as well. And that is one of the reasons why he wrote in Romans 12, verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. As Christians, we are not only called to associate with those who have something to offer to us. You remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. He says, when you have a feast, don't, don't invite those who can repay you because then you've received your reward. Invite those who have nothing to give back to you so that you will be rewarded in heaven. As Christians, we are meant to associate with the lowly, the weakest, the poor, now, I mean, that's what Jesus did. Jesus spent far more time with the blind and the crippled and the poor than he did with the influential movers of his generation. He, he welcomed little children into his arms when his disciples were tempted to tell Jesus to not associate with the lowly by saying, children, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus associated with the lowly because Jesus was not haughty. Jesus did not have lofty thoughts of himself. Instead, Jesus emptied himself of his divine glory, his eternal dignity, and he made himself nothing. 
He made himself nothing so that those who are nothing in the sight of the world might become infinitely precious in the sight of God. And so, to, to the rich and to the wealthy here at Sovereign Grace Church, uh, I, I follow Paul's instructions and I charge you, I command you to not be haughty, to not have proud, exalted, lofty thoughts of yourself in your own mind that keeps you from associating with the lowly. And I charge you, both for the sake of your relationship with God and for the sake of the health of our church. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that is true, not only of our strength and the trajectory of our lives as individuals, but it's true of our church. People will suffer because of pride, but churches will also suffer because of a haughty spirit. If we are going to see gospel culture in God's household, we must guard ourselves from pride and from a haughty spirit that comes from wealth. Paul identifies another one of wealth's dangers in verse 17 when he says to the rich, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The rich are charged not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What, what that means is their, their feelings of security and peace when it comes to the future, their projections of what awaits them. That is not to be rooted in based on what they possess because that is a shaky foundation. It is a foundation that is built on the uncertainties of riches. Riches that can be lost, riches that can be squandered, riches that can be stolen. If our hopes are set on the uncertainty of riches, then our hopes can be lost as well. Uh, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, Philip Ryken tells a sobering story of a meeting that happened in Chicago back in 1923. This meeting in Chicago was made up of nine of the wealthiest men in the world at the time. The president of the world's largest steel company, the president of the largest gas company, the president of the largest utility company, the world's greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the presidential cabinet, a Wall Street tycoon, the head of the world's largest monopoly, and the president of the Bank of International Settlements. This was a... a power meeting made up of the movers and shakers of this world. Within 25 years of that meeting, they were all dead. Three died bankrupt, three committed suicide, two spent time in prison, and one went insane. Now, there are obviously countless examples of wealthy men and women who live and die in uninterrupted prosperity just read Psalm 73 to understand that. But this story reminds us that it doesn't always work out well for them. In fact, when the wealthy set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches, it can have devastating effects. Verse 17 says that instead we are to set our hopes on God. To set our hopes on God, to, to look to him to provide for us the peace and security that we need as we look forward to the future because God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is the one who provides for us 
We do not provide for ourselves. So you may say, well, I didn't inherit my wealth. I, I worked hard for it. I, I started from the bottom. And now I, I worked myself to the top. Well, if you're thinking that, you must ask yourself, well, who gave you the gifts and the skills that you use to earn your wealth? You must ask yourself, who brought the right people into your life at the right time to help you to do well? You must ask yourself, who gave you the health that you needed to work long and hard over the years in order to succeed? Well, the answer is God. God is the one who richly provides for us, and so we do not boast. This no doubt should bring echoes of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, when he writes, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? My friends, everything we have, everything we possess has been received from God. And the beautiful thing about this, what what the, the verse reveals to us is that God has not just given all that we have for us to consume or to live by. He has given us all things that we own in order to enjoy to enjoy. You know, Paul wasn't an ascetic. He wasn't a dualist. He didn't exalt the spiritual and demean the physical. He wasn't telling the wealthy to sell all they have and to go and live in cloistered monasteries. Instead, he's telling them to to change the way that they enjoy what they have by looking not to the riches, but to the one who provided the riches by looking to God who richly provides everything for them to enjoy. God is a much surer. God is a much better foundation for us to build our hopes upon than the uncertainties of riches because God, unlike riches, never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. With God, we don't have to fear that he will be one way one day and another way another day. We don't have to fear that he will keep his promises at this time and he will break them at another time. God is eternally unchanging. God is perfect without variation and God richly provides us with everything to enjoy without limitation or end. This is the key to avoiding the dangers of wealth. This is what keeps us from becoming haughty. Because haughtiness comes from the false belief that we, we are the source of our wealth. We want to trace how we got all that we have to some source. We trace it to ourselves. Where we should be tracing it to God. God is the source of our wealth. God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so if we received it, why would we, why would we boast? As if we did not receive it. Why would we become haughty? Instead, we would become grateful. We would become thankful for what God has provided. We hope not in the provision, but in the provider. Our provision may change, but our provider never will. And he will always provide us with everything that we need for his glory and for our joy. Now, those are the dangers of wealth Those are the pitfalls we need to avoid if we are to keep our riches in this present age in perspective, to keep them from becoming our identity and source of hope. But what are the blessings of wealth? They're not just a source of temptation. They are also the source of opportunity to do much good with. 
What does this text have to say about that? Well, that leads to our second point. Now, you may have noticed the wordplay that Paul uses in this passage. In verse 17, he talked about the rich who are in the present age. He says, don't put your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then in verse 18, he says that they are to be rich in good works. The rich are to trust in the God of riches by investing in the true riches of good works. Let me say that again. The the rich are to trust in the God of riches by investing in the true riches of good works. Paul is telling us what the truly rich life looks like in these verses. It doesn't look like living in a mansion. It doesn't look like driving a luxury car. It doesn't look like going on expensive trips. That is all fleeting. That is all temporarily bound to this present age. It is all passing away along with this present age. What will never pass away is the investment that we make in doing good works, in caring for others, in sharing what we have with those who are in need. There is much confusion these days about the relationship between the Christian and good works. Because as children of the Reformation and the restoration of the the, the central doctrine of justification by faith alone. We have somewhat forgotten the role of good works in the Christian life. I was reminded of that this past week. Or once a month I speak at the Christian school in Newmarket where my children attend. And we've been working through the New City Catechism together. This past Wednesday, we reached question 34, which asks, since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? That, that is the question posed by the, the, the implications of the Reformation. What is the relationship between the Christian and good works? If we are justified by faith alone, not works, must we still do good? And if so, how are we to understand it? Well, I love the answer that the catechism provides. It says this, Yes, yes, we are to do good and obey God's word because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits and so that by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. There you have in in short, simple form, the, the relationship between the Christian and good works. We, we do good works fundamentally because we are not only redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are renewed by the spirit of Christ. We are made new. We, we, we have new loves. Our, our, our character has changed. We have the mind of Christ. We no longer love the things of the world. We love the things of Christ. And what does Christ love? He loves serving. He loves coming along the needy and the lowly. He loves lifting up others into a relationship with God. He loves providing for people's needs. I mean, let's not forget that Jesus didn't just minister to people's spiritual needs. When the, when the 5,000 men and their families were gathered in that, that remote location and Jesus is giving them the bread of life of his teaching, he then, it then says he looked upon them with compassion because they had nothing to eat. We, we do good works because we are not only redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are renewed by the spirit of Christ. 
The catechism then gives three reasons, three more specific reasons for, for why we do good works. What motivates us to do good so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God. Good works is the proper response of the regenerated sinner. It says, so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits. And Jesus said that, that bad trees do not bear good fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. And what were the good fruits? It was the good fruit of good works. If you are a good tree in Christ, you will, do, you will bear the good fruit of good works. And if you do not bear the good fruit of good works, you have no assurance that you are indeed transformed into a good tree. And the third reason, so that by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. It is by the salt and light of our lives that others see God's glory and give praise to him. That is why we do good works. The Christian life is one that is devoted to good works. We're not saved by those good works, but we are saved for those good works. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter two, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My, my Christian brother and sister, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is true of you, whether you are a new Christian or a veteran Christian, whether you grew up in a Christian home or you didn't, whether you are living check by check or whether you have money to spare, all of us are saved by Christ for good works. But it is the wealthy who have more opportunities to do good works because they have more resources at their disposal. You think about the parable of the talents. The servant with two talents produced two more. The servant with five talents produced five more. Both were faithful. Both were commended by their master. But only the one who started with five was able to produce five more. The wealthy, listen, the wealthy have more talents than others. And they will be called to account for a greater return because of the increased amount that they started with. And so we are to invest what God has richly provided for us to enjoy into the lives of others so that they may enjoy God's richness as well. We are to be rich in good works. And Paul gives us a couple ideas of what that could look like in verse 18 when he says that we are to be generous and ready to share. I mean, part of the good works that the wealthy can and should engage in is just sharing their resources, giving away their wealth to, to bless others, to, to provide for the needy, to, to perhaps start some initiative that will lead to the planting of churches and to the training of pastors so that more churches can be multiplied and good works could be multiplied through them. But that is just one example Paul says in verse 18 that they are to do good, not just to give resources so that others can do good, but they themselves are to do good, to be rich in good works. I don't think Paul gives us a catalog of what this looks like because he doesn't want to limit the imagination that we, we, could, we could put to use to just come up with ideas and strategies and ways for us to use our wealth to, to do good, to be rich in good works 
to others for the same entrepreneurial spirit, the same type A, take charge personality to be diverted from the world of business, from building up your companies to doing good, to blessing the community, to showing the world the glory and goodness of God. Whatever it may be, the important thing is that you are investing your riches on behalf of the one who gave them to you so that you may be rich in good works. Now you remember what Paul said earlier in chapter six when he was talking about the false teachers and how they were using godliness as a means of gain. They they were projecting themselves to be pious and religious and to be teachers of the word so that they could get something else, so that they could get power and influence and wealth. But here, what we see is that the pattern for the Christian is precisely the opposite. Philip Ryken wisely writes, instead of considering godliness as a means to gain, he wants them to use their gain as a means of godliness. I love that. Godliness is not a means of gain. Gain is a means of godliness. As we use the gain that God has richly provided for us to enjoy, to be rich in good works. But there is a surprise. There is a surprise within this text. As Christians use their gain as a means of godliness, they will also gain. Gain leads to godliness, and godliness leads to gain. And that that gain is true gain. That gain is the harvest of a true, everlasting gain. Verse 19, it says that they are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. My friends, as you give of your earthly treasures, you are also laying up heavenly treasures. And and, and these heavenly treasures are not like the earthly treasures that are uncertain and that are passing away. These, These treasures will serve as a good foundation, not a shaky foundation, not a weak foundation, not an uncertain foundation, but a good foundation for the future, for the ages to come. This is what Jesus spoke of when he called his disciples to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Our good works are being counted by the Lord, not as a basis for our salvation. Christ alone is the basis of our salvation to be received by grace through faith, but as a basis for our reward. Everyone who is in Christ will receive the free gift of eternal life bought for us by the precious blood of Christ and offered to us freely by grace and grace alone. But each one of us will receive a different reward for the good works that we did in humble faith and dependence on the Lord. Paul says that it is by doing good that we take hold of that which is truly life. The more we give of our time, the more we give of our resources, the more we give of our giftings, the the more we will experience and enjoy the abundant life that is found in Christ alone. If If you're a businessman and you are feeling dead, you are feeling bored, you are feeling that that life is not what you thought it would be when you were at this stage in your career, then be rich in good works and you will take hold of that which is truly life, life that is found in Christ. 
Now, Paul ends this wonderful spirit-inspired letter with some final instructions, which leads to our third point. After he has spent some time providing instructions for the church, Paul, one last time in this letter, turns his gaze upon Timothy himself, his dear child in the faith, his fellow worker in the gospel. And he writes in verse 20, O Timothy, O Timothy. His words are, are dripping with emotion and significance and, and weight. He's, oh, oh, Timothy, listen. Listen to this one last thing that I have to say to you. Don't forget this. This, this summarizes everything that I have written, everything that I have said. This is what you must not forget. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Well, what is the deposit? What is this sacred trust that Paul exhorts Timothy to guard? Well, there is no question that what Timothy is being called to guard is the gospel. It's the gospel. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit of the gospel entrusted to you. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 1, verse 11, Paul uses the same language in reference to the gospel. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Whenever Paul writes about being entrusted with something from God on behalf of God, he is writing about the gospel. We see that again in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, which now has been manifested, that is the grace of God, the grace has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. It is the gospel that is the final end of his ministry as an apostle, as a preacher, and as a teacher. That is what he was appointed for, for the gospel, which is why he suffers as he does. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The gospel is this deposit that has been entrusted first to Paul, then to Timothy, then to every faithful pastor and every faithful church that has followed. The gospel is a sacred trust guarded by God himself. And he has appointed pastors and he has raised up churches to proclaim this same gospel and guard it alongside him. Sovereign Grace Church, there is nothing more important for us to do than this. To guard the gospel. We must guard the gospel. We must guard the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners by his death. Christ came into the world to bear God's wrath against us. Uh, to, to stand condemned in our place, to be the lamb who would have the iniquity of us all laid upon him so that by grace we could be reconciled to God. We are to guard the truth that God the Son was forsaken by God the Father so that we could be welcomed into God's eternal fellowship and the never-changing, never-ending relationship of love. We are called to guard the truth that we can indeed take hold of that which is truly life because of the free gift of Jesus Christ. This is what we must guard 
We must guard it. We must not change it. We must not modify it. We must not try to improve upon it. We must not water it down to fit our cultural sensibilities. We must guard it. We must guard the gospel with all our lives because only the gospel can save us from God's judgment and only the gospel can bring the kind of culture the culture of love and truth and humility and service that we read about in these pages into the experienced life of our local churches. Now this means avoiding what would undermine the gospel. Paul says avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Irreverent babble literally means godless chatter. Things that sound pious but are completely useless. There are always going to be so-called Christian teachers and authors who say that they have the newest key to your happiness and success. Whether it means drawing circles around what you want or praying some hidden lost prayer in the Old Testament, there's always going to be fads written by, by and, and advocated by people who say that they have some kind of secret key, some knowledge that actually doesn't lead people closer to God, but away from him. By professing these false bits of knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. This knowledge is not only false, it is damning. People swerve from the faith by falling into their false claims. We know this, but we we need to remember this, that the path to holiness and to happiness will always be found in the same old place, the ancient paths of the gospel, the the good news that Christ was crucified for sinners and risen again for our justification. This is what we must guard. We must guard this so that those around us and so that those who will come after us to a generation not yet born would be able to hear, believe the same gospel. Paul ends his letter with these four precious words in verse 21. Grace be with you. That word you, you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, it is second person plural. You all. In in verse 20, he had written directly to Timothy, second person singular, but here at the end, he addresses the church and all the faithful believers who would come in the subsequent generations and he says, grace be with you, with all of you, that, that grace, God's grace, his unmerited favor, the, the manifestation of his love and comfort and peace that grace would be with us all, that grace would come to his people, protect them, sustain them as they live out their Christian faith in God's household. And so as Paul ends his letter in this way, with this prayer blessing, so I also end this sermon and this series with this prayer blessing. May God's grace be with you all, as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. May God's grace be with you all as you train yourselves for godliness. 
so that your lives reflect, reflect God's glory. May God's grace be with you all as you care for the weak who are among us so that none are neglected or forgotten. May God's grace be with you all as you devote yourselves to being rich in good works so that many would praise the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And may God's grace be with you all as we guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us until that blessed day when we finally stand in God's true everlasting household, our eternal dwelling place where we will live together with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded this morning of weighty, eternal, sobering realities that we who are so prone to walk by sight, to live by what we see and taste and touch and experience. We are only living in a brief momentary age of this world. And all of it, all of it will pass away. But as we have often remembered, as I have often remembered that, that old poem, um, uh, only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May, may that be our perspective as individual Christians. May that be our perspective as a church, that all we do would be for Christ, that we would build a sure and true and lasting foundation, not just for this life, but for the life to come. And we would hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. Now I will entrust you with much. We pray that our church would abound in good works, that those who are wealthy among us would use what you have given to them to be rich in good works, that many may know that you are the generous, good God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.